Welcome to the Faith Today podcast, conversations inspired by Canada's Christian magazine. It's January, so perfect timing for a podcast about funerals. We know, we know, but if anyone can make a chat about funerals interesting, it's theologian David Gretzky interviewing Tim Perry. Tim is Dean and Professor of Theology at Providence Seminary, as well as author of the new book, Funerals for the Care of Souls. We hope you enjoy this conversation, and we think you will. Today I'm speaking to Dr. Tim Perry, author of a new book from Lexham Press entitled Funerals for the Care of Souls. Dr. Perry is an academic dean of Providence Seminary in Otterburn, Manitoba. He's a professor of theology and ethics. He's a pastor, while former, and, and at heart, I think. And for me, a longtime friend and fellow theology pilgrim or theology nerd, whichever you prefer. So welcome, Tim. Glad to have you here today. Thank you. Well, I was, I was looking for the right metaphor to jump into our conversation today on, on your book on funerals. I was going to say, let's jump right in, but that seemed a little bit too vivid. And then I was going to say I was dying to speak to you, but I think that's a little bit over the top. <laughs> so oh, I'm just going to forget the metaphor, Tim, and let's just be as bold as to ask a book on funerals. What prompted that? That's a great question. And the answer is kind of convoluted. I didn't set out to write a book on funerals. A few years ago now, five years ago now, I uh, resigned my license uh, in the Anglican Church of Canada and moved back to my hometown uh, to help care for my dad, who was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. And uh, it was a big move for us. I had managed to keep kind of one foot in the academy through Thornlow College and Laurentian University while I was in Sudbury, where we were in ministry. And uh, it looked to me like I was leaving that behind. Unbeknownst to me, a couple of former students decided I should start writing uh, again and began pestering me to write a book. And I did. When the uh, editorial team at Lexham Press, who published that first book, learned a little bit more about my work situation, which included basically being a funeral director's assistant, they asked me to write this book as part of their new Lexham Ministry Guide series. So it was not a project I went looking for, but it was one that kind of resonated with where I was at professionally at the time. My work in the funeral home afforded me opportunity to ask some interesting theological questions that I hadn't asked before, or at least asked in a way that in which pastoral concerns were central. And so uh, I was really grateful for their invitation, and the book itself came together pretty quickly. I feel really uh, blessed to be included in, a, and I think, a really, really good uh, series of books on pastoral care. Well, I'll tell you, when it landed on my desk, even the size of it, sort of in a handbook, I thought that's probably what we're going to be getting, uh, some kind of pastoral handbook. But it's not exactly that. It's a little bit different than that, and maybe we'll talk a little bit about the genre later, but... I want to just jump into some of the specific topics. We'll probably get a sense of the structure of the book a little bit later. But one, one of the things you talk about in the book early on is about culture, both in the church and broader society. And you, you kind of describe this cultural recoil, as it were, against funerals, the practice and the idea of funerals. Can you tell us a little bit about what you've been thinking there about why, why is culture resisting funerals? And, and maybe as a second part of that question, is that kind of seeping into the churches too? The broad cultural shift is one that your listeners and readers of faith today 
co-laborers with the EFC all the way back to Brian Stiller's days will we'll be very familiar with. It's, you know, the shift away from a public life that has recognizably Christian contours to a public life that is not just religiously neutral, but is actually religiously hostile. You know, that's the context in which we find ourselves, and that impinges upon the way ministers do the big rites of passage, child baptism or dedication, marriages, funerals, kind of the major ways we mark the passages of life changes as a result of that larger cultural shift. In the book, I talk about, you know, a time that I can remember when a book like this wouldn't have been needed because everybody knew what to do. Hmm. Uh, And that's simply no longer true anymore. It's not true in the wider culture. It's increasingly not true in Christian cultures. I was just reading a book uh, this morning before we chatted, and there was a wonderful line. Over the last 50 years, the church has sought to be relevant to the world and instead just became worldly. Hmm. Uh, And I, I think we see that in the way believers treat the rites of passage as consumer products that they get to construct. And if there's a Christian element, fine. And if there's not, it's no big deal. Mm. So, you know, to to pick a a non-death related example, deciding to get married on a beach in Cuba or in a church is purely one of aesthetics. Right. Or preference. Is funeral religious? Do you think there is a big difference between even even the word funeral? You don't hear people talking about funerals anymore. Is there something inherent about the word itself that has that religious theological overtone? Funeral is a is a word people are afraid of mm-hmm. uh, in the church and out. I'm not quite sure why. We're all familiar with the words that we use to euphemize it. You know, homegoing celebration of life, which is increasingly ubiquitous and which I really don't like because it sounds like a retirement roast. Right. Yeah. I I hope people will celebrate my life while I'm there to enjoy it with them, frankly. Um, There's a somberness to to the word though, right? There's such a a somberness to it that that it has been carried through. People obviously know that a funeral is a somber event. So it is interesting though, that even I've seen the same thing, you know, moving away from calling funeral a funeral, calling it something else. Yeah, it's, that's certainly part of it. And I, and I think to get back to your original question, I think that that's part of a larger cultural obsession with health and safety, which really doesn't know what to do with death. Right. And maybe buffering ourselves from death. You yeah. know, I read, a, read an article a number of years ago of how few people in our modern society ever actually see someone dead, mm-hmm. a dead body. And we're, we're so buffered from birth to death. We have specialists who take care of people in need in the latter stages of their life. And sometimes even when someone dies, they're, you know, very quickly ushered out of the room and people don't even have a chance to be with them. Is it, I wonder if that's part of it too. Yeah, it is. It, there, there's, it's a whole confluence of things. It's, it's financial considerations. It's cultural mores and cultural mood. It's changes in the dynamic of church life, where the pastor is less and less a doctor of the soul who walks with a parishioner from birth till death, and more and more the manager of 
some kind of peculiar social organization. Yeah. And it's it's all of those working themselves out in this particular event that I think makes my book necessary. So Tim, you you know that I've taught eschatology in the past as well. And one thing I used to say to my students is when you go to a funeral, kind of observe what's being said at a funeral. And one thing I've noted in the last five or six funerals that I was thinking about as I was preparing for our talk today, I don't hear a lot of resurrection talk at mm-hmm. funerals these days. And these are from evangelical churches. Mm-hmm. And and it's uh, you, in your book, you talk about one of your chapters is about resurrection. Am I just getting some isolated experiences, you know, or what's going on there in the church when you'd think that that's a great opportunity to be talking about the resurrection, but often pastors aren't? How come? Yeah. I think uh, maybe, maybe this takes us a little bit into the theological weeds, but I think it points to the slow death of the Christological imagination. We don't read things through the lens of Jesus perhaps the way we should. And, you know, Jesus doesn't give us a doctrine of an immortal soul. He gives us his body as he does to, you know, Thomas on the week after Easter and says, put your finger here and see. The goal, I think, is is not so much to talk about resurrection on its own as it is to talk about Jesus, who in dying did not dissolve into nothingness, So there is something to be said about the soul and who in rising is very much material, no longer fallen, no longer animated by, you know, what St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 calls a, a soulish body, but instead fully animated by the spiritual body that we hope to share in. I I hope that, you know, in, in talking about heaven and hell, as I do in, in two chapters, I'm trying to reread those very important themes with Jesus at the center mm-hmm. uh, in the hope that that will influence future funeral sermons. It's, it's a wonderful opportunity to talk about Jesus, and that needs to be taken up more, I think. Well, you raised it, the doctrine of immortality of the soul. <laughs> mm. I was curious as I was reading your book, because uh, you do raise that you know, the wonderful chapter on resurrection, but you also talk about the immortality of the soul. And that's that has been a doctrine that's been going out of vogue, I think, amongst many. So I was actually a little bit surprised about that. So maybe I'm going to, we're going to lead into a couple of questions here related to it. Just talk about the relationship between the doctrine of immortality of the soul and resurrection. But then I want to actually bring it back to, you know, a second question once you've answered there. Uh, practically about how does that work itself out pastorally, but, but just talk about what are you pushing, pushing towards um, in your book? I I don't know that I'm pushing towards anything. I'm keeping a pretty traditional read of the immortality of the soul. Uh, I'd like to think entirely traditional, which is to say with St. Paul to be absent from the body is to be present to the Lord for the believer There's very little further description of what being present with the Lord is, but because it's with the Lord, well, we can be sure it's good. Largely, that's that's all I want to say. You know, death death is not, I, I, I do say in the book, death is the end with a full stop. And in many ways it is, but the the end is not their entirely annihilation. That which makes me me 
when I die, I think the teachings of the scriptures is that which makes me me will continue to be hid with Christ in God until the resurrection day. And, yep. and then I will be in a resurrection body in a new creation fit for life in and with God forever. And that's well, good. This would be a wonderful conversation because I probably want to talk to you about length at that, about whether the immortality of the soul is actually necessary to be present with Christ or whether it's something that Christ is doing to hold us there. But regardless, let me ask this, this real practical question now as a pastor. When someone dies, you know, the, the doctrine of uh, some kind of doctrine of intermediate state is asking the question of what, what happens when someone dies? And, and I'm sure pastors get that all the time. Mm-hmm. And you've been a pastor. So get, given what you've thought through here on some of these eschatological questions, like, what do you say when someone says, well, like, where's grandma? Where's grandpa? Or, or where's my spouse? You know, as a pastor with that theological framework, if you've only got a minute or two to answer, how, how do you answer that? You know what? That is a case-specific question. Okay. And I don't know that there is a tidy answer that's one size fits all. I should have probably said, Tim, that I'm, I'm thinking in terms of in the Christian community within the church, right. you know, right. at least at least narrow it to that that and, community. But you know what? Even then, it's a challenge. Right. Because Mm. while there are grounds for hope, I don't know that any of us can be assured of the final salvation of anyone else. Because I don't get to preempt the judgment of God in, in any case. I've stood at the gravesides of saints, including my own dad. And the thought of where is dad does not enter my head or where are they does not enter my head. Because as far as I can know anything, and it's not 100% certain, but I am, I am very confident there with Jesus and wherever that is, that is good. I have been asked at Christian funerals about people whose relationship with God has been in the eyes of their family and friends less clear. And in those situations, the pastor has to do his or her best to be comforting to be to offer the good news of the gospel to that situation and to commit that person to a god who is infinitely just and infinitely merciful and to not say more than that and and sometimes that's that's hard it's hard to find the balance and it it really is i wasn't being flippant before it really is a a case specific kind of situation that's really interesting why do you think it's so hard, even within the Christian community, to be settled with that answer? He or she is with the Lord, or he or she is in the Lord's hands, you know, context specific. I know I've performed some funerals where the situation was very unclear. And I think my standard answer was, you know, the Lord will do what is right. Mm-hmm. Why is that so hard to accept? I think that points to something pretty fundamental about our fallenness, that we want to take the place of God as the final judge. And we're, we're at a very profound level, especially with people we love, maybe even more than ourselves. We're not content to leave the last word with him. We want to write the last word so that it, it soothes us. And 
you know, there, I think I think there's a fundamental question of trust in God that really is is existential. And I, I know that God forbid, should should I stand at the grave of one of my children, I'm going to want to do that too. Like I'm, I'm not standing in judgment on anybody. I think it's true of all of us. Uh, that's really helpful. Let's shift the gears a little bit. I I wanted to at least signal to the the really unique structure of this book, and I hope that uh, listeners will actually get their hands on it. Really, two parts. The first part's really kind of like a mini eschatology. You talk about the big themes, you know, death and judgment, heaven and hell, wonderful chapters, resurrection, and so on. Then the second part, you you get a little closer to what I was expecting, you know, the handbook side, but I, you do it with such theological beauty. Uh, and you talk about four distinct roles for pastors in the practice of funerals. Could you like do like a really quick, what are those four roles? Sure. Describe them. Let me open up my book here so I can get them in the right <laughs> order. A, a pastor ultimately has four responsibilities throughout ministry but you know those those four responsibilities each have their own distinct roles in funerals and the the first one is to be a catechist is to be a teacher Uh, and this is not limited to the one or two hours that you have to meet with the family to plan the service this is something that should be going on all the time in our ministry uh, it's one of the, the few areas where I agree with the philosopher <laughs> Immanuel Kant. It's his conviction that religion is about addressing the question, what may I hope? In other words, it's about getting people ready to die. And, and in a, a really fundamental way, I think that's true. And so if as pastors, in the course of our regular preaching and teaching, the subject of our parishioners' mortality never comes up. We're doing them a disservice because not everybody in your parish is going to struggle with questions of identity. Not everybody in your parish is going to get married. Not everybody in your parish is going to have children. Not everybody in your parish is going to need a whole lot of advice on how to plan for their wealth because they have no money. Right. Everybody in your parish is going to die. The Bible has a lot to say about the fact that we're all going to die. And so that should be part of our regular preaching and teaching. But it is especially part of, you know, planning the service. There is a, a unique pastoral opportunity where people will be reflecting on the questions, not just of the destiny of their loved one, though that comes up, but of their own mortality hmm. and of the, you know, if, if you're dealing as, as I often did with people whose connection to faith was tenuous, uh, where questions of transcendence might come up in a way that they hardly ever do elsewhere. Seize the opportunity to, to talk about those things. And if you're going to do that, you better have something to talk about, which is why I spent the first four chapters talking about those things. So, so the first thing a pastor is in the face of death is a teacher. Then in the actual planning of the service, a pastor is a liturgist. A funeral is is not a family or friends constructed memorial service. 
It's not awake. Uh, I come from a Northern Irish background. Let me be very clear. There is nothing wrong with wakes. Wakes are great. Wakes serve really important therapeutic and pastoral functions, uh, whether it's like a, a traditional wake before or a reception after. I'm not dismissing those, but they're not a substitute for a funeral. Uh, a funeral is a worship service. Uh, a funeral is the opportunity to bring a literally, a literal limit experience into a shared language, into the presence of God, and laying our, our love, our grief, our, all the complications that come with death, and death is always complicated, I've found, to lay them all before God and to ask him plainly, not just to help us make sense of it, but to make sense of it, period. It's a pastor's awesome, there's an overused word, hmm. privilege and responsibility to do that in a worship service which is why in the book I'm quite keen on sticking with the language that has been shown to work because it's been honed through centuries of use and resist yes. the temptation to make it up as you go along for all the rituals, not just for funerals. Yeah. So absolutely. a teacher and then a liturgist, there's a couple others. Yeah. Ev evangelist mm. uh, talk about the sermon um, if you're not preaching the gospel, what are you doing there? A funeral is a great place to preach the gospel. It's not a great place to speculate on the nature of heaven or the nature of somewhere further south than heaven. Uh, it's a great place to talk about Jesus fully and freely be because, again, people at, at a funeral, even people who are not just uh, unchurched, but de-churched. People are still, I think, wanting to hear from God. And God's answer to the problem of death is ultimately a risen Lord and a poured out spirit. And that's what you got to be talking about. I think. And, and the last role is? Is pastor. You're a shepherd of souls. Your relationship with a family Unless they say we're done, a relationship with a family doesn't end with a funeral. It changes. It may, in fact, start. It doesn't end, or at least it shouldn't, at the pastor's end of things. This is especially the case, you know, if, if the family you're working with is one whom you know and have known for years, you're still going to be walking with those people for years afterwards to circle back to a theme that we touched on earlier. It, you know, you're a pastor, you're shepherding people through their lives. You're not, you're not the CEO of a social work organization. So shepherd their souls. Uh, and I, and I, I do talk a little bit about, you know, the importance of the reception in that chapter, and I talk about the importance of, you know, talking about death over egg salad sandwiches. There's something that a pastor can do about bringing the experience of death into the ordinariness of church community life that's absolutely vital in terms of helping a family take their loved one to the threshold 
of eternity, bless God, thank God, and turn around and walk back to the land of the living. I think a pastor is absolutely vital for that. And I think one of the reasons why culturally and in church, we are so weirded out, for lack of a better phrase, by death these days is precisely because we don't have people who are willing to just walk with us down to the grave and then turn around and walk back out again. I mean, that's a fantastic segue for something I've been thinking of asking you. You don't really address it in the the book, but you talk about the community. So a lot of listeners won't be pastors, but it seems like maybe we need some training as community people, as, as people of faith who are just part of the body sure. about how to participate in a funeral. Is, is there anything you can say to those of us who aren't pastors? Like, what's our role in a funeral? Uh, that, you've talked a lot about the pastor's role. What's our role? Well, you're, you're going to think I'm being flippant again. I'm really not. <laughs> Bring food. Interesting. A grieving family has a whole lot of stuff to do and very little mental and spiritual space in which to do it. And the more a church community can take the simple necessities of life off their plate to free them up mentally and spiritually to make those those decisions, the better. My pastoral experience is, is, is limited, but in my pastoral experience, rural churches seem to grasp this intuitively in a way that urban churches don't, unless they're ethnic urban churches. But yet bring food. That's a big thing. In in the absence of food, bring a, you know, a Tim Hortons gift card. Um, One of the most profound things that happened to my mom when my dad died, a longtime colleague of my dad's who'd since moved away and had just come through losing his own wife to cancer, said to my mom, said, I didn't bring you a card. I'm going to send you a card in two months, because that's when you'll need it. And when you get that card, I want you to call me. That's absolutely brilliant. My mom got some absurd number, just because my dad was very active in a number of ways in our community. My mom got like 350 memorial cards. She remembers the one she got from Donnie Stevens. You know? Uh, One thing I've been thinking about, Tim, is the place of children. It seems like often children are absent from funerals. It's almost like we're protecting them from, from the funeral. Yep. And it seems like maybe we have to get back to bringing the kids. Because Absolutely. It, I mean, there are certainly some situations where it would not be appropriate. Sure. But by and large, yep. Because it's one another one, another way to introduce the reality of, of all of our existential situation. We're all going to die. Yep. We're all going to die. Well, listen, Tim, you know, the world is really wanting to hear about eulogies. (laughs) (laughs) I love what you said about eulogies in the book, but but can you give us the encapsulated view? Sure. Eulogies are really risky. As a pastor, you're surrendering control of the pulpit to someone else. So the first thing you got to do is decide whether or not a eulogy would be appropriate. If I'm going to err, I'm going to err on the side of the eulogy being bad rather than the eulogy not being there. Because I I do think it's an important way of bringing our memories 
of the deceased person into the presence of God. And it also, and every bit as importantly, frees the pastor from turning the sermon into a eulogy so that it can be the declaration of the word of God. But there's no doubt about it. It's a risk. And so you, you want to be very careful. So what are those risks? Well, uh, the I'm sorry, pastor, but I got to tell this. Those kinds of stories that really don't belong in a church. And I've, I've said to people, and, and I don't know that they took it badly, but I, I've said to people, you know, not every story that you're going to want to tell is suitable for a church service. So maybe you need to think about, is this a story that, that would be good for a laugh at the reception afterwards rather than in the worship service? So, so it's not about saying, no, you cannot tell that story. It's about kind of redirecting stories to where they rightfully belong. So but, part of that teaching point that you, you talked about the pastor being the teacher is in, in preparation for the funeral is, is actually helping people to understand the eulogy. They may, most, most people may not even know what that really is all about yep. and, and how it fits into the service. There's a brief moment to teach there about, yep. about how your role as the eulogist might come into play. Yep. But yeah, there's a risk. I can see oh, that. Absolutely. I've been at, I've been at a couple myself where the eulogy was 45 minutes and by then, people are no no longer ready to, to sit along uh, yeah, for you, for the for the sermon. You kind of have to start over, and you do have to pick up the pace. Yeah, yeah that's happened yeah. to me a couple times too. Well, we're getting closer to time that we got to be done, Tim. But but I have a a question for you. I know a lot of pastors, uh, especially pastors who do a lot of funerals, have maybe a favorite biblical text that they go to. Do you have a kind of a favorite text that you like to preach um, oh at a funeral? Or, or do you kind of go case by case? I go case by case. I take my book of alternative services with me, particularly if I'm going to plan with a family who doesn't have a whole lot of church experience, because it has a very helpful list of possible scripture selections. And you can work through them with, uh, with the family. I find that very helpful. The families that I work with gravitate towards the 23rd Psalm. I mean, there's a there's a, a dim cultural memory there that is not yet eclipsed in most of Canada. And as long as it's not eclipsed, I'm going to camp on it. We could probably have a whole nother conversation about, because it's such an important topic about the families who come to pastors who have no church background whatsoever. I mean, a lot of our conversation has been somewhat assuming still the, the Christian context, but increasingly pastors, as you say in your book, are, are called upon. Yep. And what, what an opportunity, what an opportunity yep. for them to, to minister uh, in, in a difficult time. It is. Tim, this has been fantastic. It's been a lot of fun and fun about funerals. Does that make sense? <laughs> you know but what? It, it actually does. And I, 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 don't, I hope it's not macabre, but I, I really do enjoy helping church leaders, whether they're lay or ordained or in pastoral ministry or some other form of leadership, helping think through these kinds of things because they, they are important and I do think they are neglected. Well, the book is called Funerals for the Care of Souls by Dr. Tim Perry at Lexham Press. I'm assuming, Tim, these can be purchased on online, Amazon, all the, the usual places, I'm sure. 
can be purchased at the usual places, though I will make a plea. If you are going to order online, please order direct from the publisher, because that way authors like me get a little bit more royalty. And uh, Mr. Bezos has enough of my money already. <laughs> Very good. Yeah. So that's Alex- Lexum Press, Funerals for the Care of Souls. Thanks for being with us, Tim. It's been great to have you. We'll have to have coffee again someday. God I would bless. like that very much. Thank you, David. Thank you for listening. Check out more podcasts and subscribe to Faith Today magazine for free at faithtoday.ca. This podcast is produced by the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada. If you enjoyed it, please rate or share it.